This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hey everybody, how's it going? How's it going everybody? I am good, I am good, I hope you are well, or I am well, I hope you are well. Can you dig it? I can. Welcome back to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I'm your host, Sam LaCrosse, and today we are talking about one of my favorite topics, a repetitive topic that I've talked about a lot this year because I believe it is becoming more and more prevalent for me to do so, and that is a lot of things going on with class systems in society, a lot of things going on with attitudes towards class systems in society, I should say. A lot of people that are getting very, very, I would think, you know, bold about a lot of different things and a lot of people who are really kind of seeing, I think, a lot of different trends in a lot of things in both culture and the marketplace. And I think that it's, it's just, it's getting to a point now where it's almost becoming f like almost funny, honestly, how much I think the, the private and the public sector are converging and the powerful people are talking to each other more and they not so powerful people are kind of being crowded out more in the conversation and everything is kind of, you know, meshing together in a very, very bizarre and I think very, very threatening way. That's why I've written so many posts about this, why I think that people like the work that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is doing, I, I view him as a personal hero of mine. He's doing some great work around this. A lot of people are beginning to start to call out the stuff around, I would say, ESG initiatives, around DE&I initiatives to a lesser extent, but really just anything that is not keeping business as usual and allocating more powerful power into the hands of centralized forces, whether that be government, private sector actors, everything in between, whether, you know, we don't know what it is, but I think I, 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 we do, but we don't in the same case, which is why I think it's so threatening in a lot of ways. But there are a lot of things that, are going on. And I think this is a very, very interesting one. We examine the class dynamics between the people that are, I like to say in this post, that are of the quote-unquote rich Americans, even though that's not really the defining thing, and we'll get to what that is in a second, and the poor Americans, which again, which really isn't, you know, I would say in that lexicon, but we'll get to that in a second also. It's very interesting, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep talking about it because I only think it's going to get more obvious and more prevalent, especially, and we'll see what happens. I think uh, Elon Musk just took over Twitter as everyone is you know, either shouting or cheering about one of the two. And we will see, I think, a very, very interesting social experiment when Musk fully takes on Twitter. We already got word that Parag Agarwal, the tyrannical CEO that took over for Jack Dorsey, is on his way out. The CFO is on his way out. Apparently, the head of content moderation and the head of legal is also on their way out. So we are going to see a lot of interesting things go down with that acquisition, with that kind of cultural environment. And I think it's going to be very, very you know, interesting to see what happens during that whole saga. But 
Until that plays out, let's get to today's. There's much to say by many people about what causes division and polarization in America today. It's not uncommon for these people to say that there are, quote, two Americas. However, it's important to define the terms of what these two Americas are. They could be and are constantly named as many things. Many people think there are between white people and ethnic minorities, liberals and conservatives, men and women. The dualities and categories they inhabit are nearly endless. However, what I would argue and have argued for the longest time is that the gap between the two Americas is not one of color, creed, or any other denomination. Rather, the gap between the two Americas resides in another arena, one less human and much more abstract. Class. It is class that brings about most of the division in America, that which pits the two tribes against one another and makes us crawl over one another like crabs in a barrel. But this isn't all the way correct either, at least not in the traditional sense. I'm a capitalist, as I've said and will continue to say a million and one times over and have said a million and one times in the past. I love when people can make money and ascend into society. It's not a bad thing, no matter how much you may hear that it is. The class divide in America is more like a caste system than a traditional class system. It is a system of elite privilege that looks down upon the majority that is not blessed enough to be graced with their dignity nor presence. Our ruling and expert class is filled with many different breeds of people with, yes, some having lots of money. However, the ones you really need to be aware of are the chameleons. The ones that tell you that they're your friend but to your face and then proceed to talk shit about you behind your back. The snakes in the grass that lurk behind, beneath your line of sight. The people that yell and scream about how big of activists they are when in actuality they're doing nothing. These are the people that you must spot. It's easy enough to spot the hacks that run our institutions and systems. They give themselves away all the time. Spotting the chameleons is ever more hard. One of those chameleons, to a lot of people's shock, is Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is a lifelong politician and businessman from the state of West Virginia. He's seen as a beacon for that state, a representative for the working people that toil in immensely hard conditions, many of them doing so in coal mines and manufacturing firms. Manchin, who formerly worked for a coal business before becoming a governor and a senator, empathizes with those people. He knows both that they're hurting and that our ruling class despises them for griping about it. And for the longest time, Manchin was their ally. A very moderate Democrat, Manchin was the so-called most conservative Democrat in Senate, or in the Senate, excuse me, frequently seeking to work across the aisle in order to both preserve his political power while doing his duty to his voters. It's remarkable how many people in Manchin's position forget that their purpose is to do exactly that. Serve their voters, the people that elect them. Wild concept, I know. Most politicians and member of our, members of our ruling class, both left and right, drop this as soon as they enter into their illustrious pearly gates. Due to our ever-contentious and borderline senile political environment these past few years, people like Manchin have come under fire for the extreme ends of their party to bend to their will. And this has been no more apparent when it comes to government spending. In 2022, the Biden administration unveiled their comically named Inflation Reduction Act, a bill that would supposedly reduce runaway inflation that was hurting Americans, especially the poor and working classes, by spending more money. Thank goodness that these people don't have to be at the mercy of their own policies most of the time. The bill, as confusing as wide-ranging as they come, was unanimously approved by every Democrat needed to support it in the Senate. Except for Manchin. Manchin, unlike most of his counterparts, still had his most crucial constituency in mind. His voters. Manchin knew that, should the Inflation Reduction Act pass, it would cripple and strangle the people of his beautiful state ever more. Even more than they were. It would cause them to suffer at a greater duration and with greater pain than they had already experienced, which was a lot in a place like West Virginia. Manchin had enough. 
He told the media and his partners in government that no matter what, he would not sign on to cripple the United States economy for fickle and stupid uniparty wish lists that would benefit no one but the ruling class. Manchin came under enormous pressure upon this declaration. He was viciously accosted by deranged climate activists in a Washington, D.C. parking garage where 20-somethings who knew nothing about the climate frantically screamed that he was a mass murderer. He was named a, quote, climate villain by The Guardian, another term that seemingly no one knew how to accurately define. He and his family received threats. He was blacklisted and called a traitor by many members of his own political party. He became a defamed and shamed pariah. But most remarkable of all, throughout all of it, Manchin remained strong. He didn't waver. He didn't bow to the mob like so many of his positions would have. He stood up straight with his shoulders back for his values and the people that helped him honor them. It was remarkable to see someone with that much resolve, especially in this political climate. Adam Sosnick, the podcast host and business partner in Valuetainment with Patrick Bet David, called him, quote, America for what he stood for. Until he didn't. Upon the deadline of the Inflation Reduction Act getting passed, a stunning news headline flashed throughout America's airwaves. Manchin was signing. After months that certainly took years off his life, Manchin caved. He signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law, thrusting an already reckless government spending arm into overdrive and our economy further down the toilet. I, and almost everyone else, was absolutely stunned. The people of West Virginia were as well. Manchin had sold them out. He made them look ridiculous. No, quote, working-class defendant would go back on their word like Manchin did. But then, after more news came out, it made all the sense in the world. It turned out that Manchin had flipped after a meeting with Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader for the Democratic Party. In that meeting, Schumer had brought along with him a special guest, one who couldn't help him but meddle in things he had no point nor reason to meddle in. Bill Gates. Bill Gates, an environmental change agent with global connections and all the money in the world, he founded Microsoft, if you weren't aware, had lobbied Manchin in that closed-door meeting with Schumer to push through the bill, which was loaded with climate spending to, quote, reduce inflation. This, an obviously rigged, albeit unfortunately legal, bug of the system, this one person that lived very far from the remainder of Manchin's constituency in West Virginia was able to get Manchin to flip after years of steadfast energy in the opposite ways. So yes, to my earlier point, our ruling class represents more of a caste system. But no, it is not only a caste system. I believe a failure of mine when talking about these situations and the people that make them up previously was me not talking about the monetary influence these people obviously hold over the rest of the people they are, in theory, supposed to serve. There is no greater proof of that than is shown with Manchin and Gates. The man who was called, again, quote, America, was bought and paid for by someone with more money and different values simply for that reason. It proved that money is the ultimate constant currency, that he who has the gold does indeed make the rules. As with capitalism and money, there are a lot of things pertaining to the topic of money in America that are perceived and talked about in the wrong way. It is not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. I don't believe that a lot of people love money. In fact, I think their relationship with it is rather contentious for the most part. However, I do believe that most people, particularly those that possess a lot of it, love what money can do for them. Our ruling class and their constant abuses is the best of evidence we have of that. But there is also a way to talk about these things that is not a lot of people that are that is not a lot of people that are used to talking about. It is not a problem with capitalism or money itself, to reiterate an already beleaguered point. It is a problem with people abusing capitalism to gain and maintain power at the expense of others, particularly those beneath them in the social class system that they are meant to be helping and serving. It is not being used as a vehicle to enhance the economy, 
but rather to make it stagnate and divide those undesirables from interfering with their classist purity. Most of the cultural and social problems that we deal with in America, then, are not, in fact, involved with things such as race or gender. No. That's a distraction. It's no different than a matador or an angry bull. They flash a shiny object in front of our eyes to make us angry and then rip it away as soon as we get close enough to see its bullshit dripping from its falsely presented ego. It is used as a point of diversion, not a genuine care or focus from our elites and experts. For all the talk of the people being, quote, disempowered, there is definitely some merit to that statement. There have been, and unfortunately still are in some cases, places where people of all different genders, races, religions, etc. are still discriminated against because of those things. It's a shame, and we should do our best to right that injustice should it present itself in front of our eyes. But there is no easier way to disempower someone than by taking away their ability to use monetary value to participate in the country's dealings. That's what makes what Bill Gates and Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer and their actions so dangerous. One man, a man who was clearly not involved with the state of West Virginia as he otherwise might have you believe, was able to uproot the voices of every single voting-age citizen of that same state with a 30-minute closed-door meeting simply because how he didn't like how those same people fed their families by mining for fossil fuels. It's disgusting, immoral, and wrong. This is why so many people hate lobbying in general. It upends the democratic process by disenfranchising voters in favor of powerful special interest groups, of which most have gotten their money from skeptical endeavors to say the least. When that power of a normally democratic process begins to accrue en masse with other people, they begin to possess institutionalized power to destabilize society by using money and lots of it, to bend the, word to the world to their whims. And since our ruling class is mostly immensely detached from the people they're supposed to be helping, it's a safe bet to assume that these interests are not nearly as congruent with the wishes of those outside the system as those people with them to be. I've sounded the alarm sometimes like a fucking nutbag about our ruling and expert classes and the mob that reinforces them for years. I think people are finally starting to wake up and understand why. However, it was a mistake on my part, and a large one, to let my ego and pride not talk about the thing that adds rocket fuel to most of the dealings we all despise. Money. That error needs to be corrected and put out for show, and that is what this following podcast is intended to do. And to do so, we first need to show why our current social class system is the def definitive power barrier in America. Next, we will look to why other issues, primarily that of the social justice variety, are taking the focal point over the issue of our social class system. And finally, we will peek into the abyss to see where this all will lead inevitably if this remains unchecked. And I just want to put it out there, see a whole section about Bill Gates without a single vaccine joke. And I'm, I'm pretty damn proud of myself for that one if I do say so. Single joke. And no, there's not going to be one later. In the early 20th century, black Americans had turned a corner. Not much longer than 50 years after the Emancipation Act and the end of the Civil War, the tides were beginning to turn for those folks that had been treated to a distorted and hollowed out version of the promise of America. Things were finally starting to break down. Institutions that had formerly barred blacks from participating were finally being opened up. With the access to resources that all other Americans had prior, the tides were beginning to shift. In the early 1900s, black Americans, contrary to what most might think, were doing incredibly well, even compared with, to their white counterparts. Black entrepreneurship and access to capital from the free market were both climbing. They owned businesses and participated in the labor force at remarkably high rates. Money flowed very freely and changed hands often, resulting in even more wealth creation than ever before. 
With a stable economy under their feet, this allowed black Americans the freedom to create better lives for themselves. Marriages under black families thrived. They had children who grew up in stable homes. They bought property. They owned things. They were able to be respected in the labor force and the economic markets because they had wind at their sails and momentum on their sides. Life was good. Until 1964. That year, in a speech given at Ohio University, President Lyndon B. Johnson announced the first of what would become many, quote, Great Society programs. The Great Society programs, a utopian vision fabricated out of the minds of power-hungry politicians, had the most ambitious goal of any political action beforehand. No one, not even President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who were power-hungry madmen in their own right, had ever set out to do something this ambitious. The Total Elimination of Poverty in the United States This is a bold statement coming from anyone. It's the absolute of all absolutes. It has never been done before. People have attempted before. They've ended up impoverishing and slaughtering them as a result. The cultures they were trying to help create fell into decay, or they were trying to help, fell into decay and rot, taking all of the people that fell for it with them. For anyone, much less this current sitting president of the United States at the time, to say that it could be done is an incredibly wild thing indeed. There are two ways to totally eliminate poverty. You can either make everyone rich, or you can make everyone poor. Making everyone rich is impossible by definition, because resources are scarce. Economic resources, money being the most important one, run out and get allocated to certain places when run properly. There's simply not enough to go around. There are winners and losers in life, especially in an economic system. So, the default state for this insane utopianist mindset around economics has been the other side of the coin. Making everyone poor. The only way to make no one poor is by making everyone poor. The Great Society programs took the obvious route, the only route that could work. They dressed it up and made it look nice. They appealed and pandered to their audience, but, however, they could not hide the ugliness for long. The effects soon took place, with one ugly outcome looming the largest of all of them. The complete and total destruction of the gains made by black America. Ever since the 1960s, black people in America have never recovered from where they were once before the Great Society programs. And, most importantly, this isn't related to just economics. Economics has a trickle-down effect both in positive and negative ways. It only took one set of legislative programs, one lie, for those effects to be set into motion. The greatest effect of the Great Society programs was the outsourcing of autonomy from sovereign human beings to the government. Things like entitlement programs and welfare, while absolutely needed in some cases, cannot be relied on absolutely. It's not sustainable. When people lose their autonomy, they become completely at the mercy of those who take it from them. They enslave themselves to victimhood by their own unwilling design, most likely not knowing the trap they willingly just walked right into. Thus, not only is the economic power of black Americans plummeted, but the social power of black Americans is plummeted also. The rates of black children born out of wedlock skyrocketed. So did the number of incarcerations in black-on-black -black crime and murder rates. Black folks are doing better than white folks in most important areas of life up until then. All to get it taken away from them by a certain centralized body of people who thought that they knew what was best for them. And a similar trend is happening right now with white folks, believe it or not. In many areas of life, people of Asian and Latino descent and their families are doing a lot better than whites. Their children are smarter, go to better schools, and get better jobs. They make more money. They have a more nucleic family structure. They're more bound to set up religious values and virtues. While white people in America found themselves in identity crisis in many ways, Asians and Latinos have stuck to and thrived within their own.
at least from what I can see in the data that I've read. However, if these people are doing better than white folks in power, how come we haven't seen a massive increase in visibility in popular culture and positions of influence? Well, for one thing, both of them are very recent innovations and updates to our cultural conversation. These things take time, whether the people who want to see change have the patience for them or not. However, another inhibitor is our current centralized power complex, which is mostly made up of clingers that came to fruition after the Great Society programs. Boomers, people who should be enjoying the final years of their grandchildren and relaxing, are seemingly as power-hungry as ever. They don't want to let go. Whenever someone tries to tell them that they should, they get irritable and upset, trying to explain that somehow the person who asked the problem is the problem. It's strange and not strange all at the same time. These power-hungry control freaks have found a way to control people via economic disempowerment. They say things like, quote, it's just a broken window, when rioters come and smash up your small business and, quote, learn to code when your jobs get outsourced. What completely out-of-touch nonsense this is. The ability to earn a living and participate in the economy is the lifeblood of success in life outside of that domain. To discourage it by saying that it's unimportant is a cruel and disingenuous thing to tell any person. Economic empowerment and money are incredibly important things. There is no getting around that fact. It may not, and I would argue should not, give you all the meaning in your life. It's said in the Bible, as we said earlier, that the love of money, not money itself, is the root of all evil, and that statement is correct. The genesis of all societal unrest throughout history has always come down to that fundamental principle. The fall of Weimar Germany, the rise of the Soviet Union, and the 2008 financial crisis led to some incredibly dark periods of tyrannical leadership and corporate malfeasance whose ripple effects are still being felt today. And there are events around the world right now going on that are eerily reminiscent of this phenomenon. The people of Sri Lanka just overthrew their government because they made horrendous financial decisions that are going to cause the bulk of their citizenry to suffer horribly. Farmers in the Netherlands are protesting about green energy policy because they and their population will starve if they are forbidden by using their tools that can help them do their jobs. A similar situation is happening right now in Europe. They will not have enough fuel to last them through the winter from a combination of the Ukrainian war and ludicrous green energy policy. Someone should have alerted the lunatics that pushed it that, statistically, far more people die from cold per year than from heat. It's not even close if you look at the data. But since the data is inconvenient, it can afford to stay hidden, I guess. You don't hear much about these things when they happen, and this is by design. All of the parties we mention, of all different creeds, ethnicities, geographies, and religions, all had one thing in common. They didn't agree with those in authority. It's dangerous not having the right opinions in today's time. The people in power know where to hit those that dissent from their orthodoxy, and they know where to hit them hard and hurt them the most. Their wallets. When class is weaponized by one party against the other, really bad shit starts to happen. It gins up animosity for all the wrong reasons. Harping on social issues without harping on the economics behind those social issues is a losing proposition for everyone but the people who can control the narrative. When people cannot be criticized for their actions, we lose all hope for a fair and free discourse to those who owe us a fair and free discourse. It's bad enough to have someone discriminate against someone else for something they can't control. But what could, and in my opinion is, be infinitely more dangerous, if not wrong, is discriminating against someone for something they can control. Because in that situation, when the person feels that they can do something about it, they can strike back and hurt the person just as much as they feel hurt them. This is, unfortunately, the cliff that our culture is currently looking over. And like Nietzsche once famously said, when you stare into the abyss, 
the abyss has an ugly habit of staring right back at you. In the post I did almost two years back on the, about the post-pandemic pandemics, one of the pandemics that broke down after the COVID pandemic was the trust pandemic. The trust pandemic, ensuing from figures who lead our institutions and our expert ruling class, would result in the abuse of the powers those individuals had over the institutions that rule us. I wrote that after COVID, an already dropping trust in institutional power would begin to plummet. I, and the many people that called this out, turned out to, unfortunately, be correct in this assumption. The example I cited to prove this point was the example of blatant insider trading by members of our political elite. To revisit the example, in February of 2020, members of Congress were briefed by medical professionals about what COVID would do to the world once it spread from China. In other words, they got the truth, something that the rest of us were not as fortunate enough to receive. And to give these folks some grace, this is warranted advice. Someone has to take charge when the shit hits the fan, and politicians make the rules that govern that change. It made sense. But what was underestimated in this equation was the ability of those congressional members, most of them career politicians who've made a fortune out of clandestine sneakery, to cheat the system at their expense. In the aftermath of the debrief, many notable congressmen sold off and or bought investments in companies that would either do well or not well during the COVID outbreak. This is, again, insider trading, knowing something that the public does not and profiting off of it at the expense of the people who do not know the same information that you do. The usual penalty is a massive fine in years in federal prison. The two most notable people participating, who, by the way, are still doing so, in these schemes were Republican Senator Richard Burr and Democratic Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. Burr, a career neoconservative who made a living off of whatever keeps him popular to mainstream Republican talking points, was eventually let off with nothing more than a slap on the wrist after a taxpayer-funded investigation. Nancy Pelosi, who is strangely worth over half a billion dollars despite working in the public sector most of her life, has not been asked many questions since either. This should immediately come off as strange. Richard Burr is either serving on or chairing multiple important committees in our federal government. Nancy Pelosi is the Democratic leader in Congress and has been for some time. This should be a national story, something that people, the most important being the citizens that voted for them, again, should want to get to the bottom of. Are our leaders actually corrupt? Do they play a role in the disaffection of millions of Americans through ill-gotten financial gains? Are they actually doing what they're paid to do in serving us? These questions were never asked. They're never going to be asked. In the brief moments it has come up, it's been waved away as, quote, nonsense or unimportant, two things it is anything but. They've denied all allegations without a shred of evidence to support their denial. They've been allowed to get off scot-free without any peasant penance for their transgressions. Even if I'm wrong, I would still want to know. That would certainly be of better use to the money I pay them than all the other things that we insist to do with it. So, what do they insist that we do with it exactly? Well, the same things that you hear, and frankly all that you hear, instead of asking questions about our government officials cheating their voters by losing their privileged positions to do so. They speak and argue completely in nonsensical talking points. They beat them like drums and use them so often it's a wonder they haven't fallen apart. They would have if they weren't constantly refreshed by dishonest actors. They talk about racial injustice and systemic racism, both admittedly horrible things. They are also admittedly very rare, sporadic, and mostly non-existent. They talk about things like election fraud, which undeniably happens in all elections. 
Election fraud, also undeniably, was nowhere near as prevalent enough to overturn the results of the 2020 election, or most likely any other election before that. They love to talk about the war in Ukraine, which is one of the worst, if not the worst, thing of all. But the war in Ukraine is also the worst because it's a point pointless proxy war run by a corrupt and authoritarian mob boss who is practically daring the second largest nuclear power in the world to send us into Judgment Day. One of the best things that has taken place this year, especially among young people and the sensible, is the pushback on some of these narratives that we're seeing. Some people are finally getting red-pilled to what they can clearly see that people that run things, are expert in ruling classes, are frauds. They largely aren't very competent or intelligent, all things that our expert in ruling classes should strive to be. But this is all just gaslighting. It's pointing out something that doesn't exist while deliberately hiding something that does exist away from your line of sight. This is the plan, particularly among powerful and wealthy elites who hold tight to power. Nearly all claims and platitudes of anything but what those things contain are just that. Claims and platitudes. There is no action behind them. There is nothing of substance to chew on. A big reason, the predominant reason, why there has been so much emphasis on racial and social justice recently, particularly by a combined corporate and government power, also known as fascism, like actual fascism, by the way, is that these people are finally getting started to call, get called out on their bullshit. They've never been able to get away with it before because of their house of mirrors and smoke tricks that they all play on us. But now that the veil has finally started to get lifted, they have found very few, if any at all, places to hide. And this makes sense. Traditionally, corporations and governments have never cared about social issues because it is not in their interest to care about social issues. The complete and total reasoning for their existence of a corporation is to make money for their shareholders. The complete and total existence for the exist reasoning for the existence of a government is to help facilitate rights for their citizens. They have no business meddling in either. People are sovereign individuals. Any immediate request to change things about society should come up from the will of the people, not institutions that make up the state. This is what makes the work of Vivek Ramaswamy so unbelievably important. Ramaswamy, a personal hero of mine, is currently waging a war against woke capitalism and all its horrors unleashed upon the world. A former biotech entrepreneur and executive who was educated at Harvard and Yale, Ramaswamy left the forsaken corporate world to focus on rebuilding it. His books Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims all point to this. They're deeply important works. But what Ramaswamy is doing is next level. This year, Ramaswamy founded a new company named Strive Asset Management. Strive's mission is, sing is singular. Restore America's ec economy and investments back towards excellence and away from Ra what Ramaswamy and others have dubbed the single greatest kiss of death for it. ESG. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, is a new term that has been popularized and appropriated onto corporations by the culture. Its primary goal is to shift the focus of capitalism from shareholders to stakeholders, meaning anyone or anything who comes in contact with the company in any form. Corporations, and not to mention small businesses, cannot possibly do this. It's an impossible goal to please any everyone. That's why businesses have to trim their focus on one singular goal, the one they have the best chance to serve, their customers. But this is a lie. Ramaswamy has dubbed ESG, our Trojan horse, as what he calls crony capitalism 2.0. And to examine crony capitalism 2.0, we must first go back to crony capitalism 1.0. OG crony capitalism was focused primarily on actions similar to what Richard Burr and Nancy Pelosi did, combining corporate and government power openly to enrich the few at the top of those structures. This was, obviously, a biased and unfair perversion of capitalism, and was later outlawed. Crony capitalism 2.0, however, is different. 
In Crony Capitalism 2.0, as described by Ramaswamy, politics use capitalism to do through the back door what it can't do through the front door. Namely, sending out agendas that have nothing to do with business, aren't popular with voters, and making private sector employees choke on it. In essence, it centralizes power by disenfranchising citizens who have far less power by throwing policy into a formerly neutral space. And this all begs another question. If businesses were previously a neutral space, then who is making them do so? Or not so, I should say. And the answer? The young and cheap labor that runs those companies. There is more and more data available now than ever that states that employees want companies they work for to take stances on social issues. They do not wish to work for corporations. They wish to work for think tanks, those who, quote, think about what they're doing before they do it. This is appealing to the people that run the companies, to our ruling class, because they can use the desires of these young people to manipulate them first, then move on to the market. They use the young in charge to create an environment where it can exist, and then force the rest of the company to bow to them to appeal to the virtues that are not actually virtues at all. In the increasingly ESG-bound of sectors of consulting, finance, and technology, where most of the shenanigans are taking place, this is the norm, not the exception. And sadly, the influence of consulting, finance, and technology affects every other sector of business on the planet. But behind the scenes, these companies are what they always were, capitalistic and ruthless. We haven't seen too many statements on equity in the tech sector recently, where there seems to be another massive wave of layoffs every other day due to worsening economic conditions. There hasn't been that much empathy shown to the fraudulent, quote, great resignation when companies have to tighten their belts on benefits and wages. When shit hits the fan, which always means money going down the drain, all of the crony capitalism goes out the window in favor of actual capitalism. A very exciting book that I'll be attempting to get through shortly is When McKinsey Came to Town, a book about the influence consulting giant that has run roughshod over small business and helped create the opioid epidemic. They've automated jobs away and gutted nearly everything that they touch. However, if you look at some of their studies, you could easily mistake them for a policy institution that is used by rich people to pander to those who are powerless. And the same can be said for big tech firms. The companies that pride themselves on being ahead of the curve in terms of social justice also hold a monopoly on the two biggest resources of the new age economy, data and information. Data and information is what the economy runs on other than oil. It's the most valuable commodity in the world. They would prefer you not to notice that, and instead look at their latest statement on transgender youth rights or something. Big Pharma has sickeningly profited off of things like vaccinations and ventilators for years, which both peaked during COVID, the COVID pandemic. Neither of them were effective at stopping the spread of the virus, and ventilators hardly did much to stop people from dying while on them, believe it or not, and they would prefer you not to notice that. Defense companies in the military-industrial complex composed of corporations such as Boeing and Raytheon would like you to pay attention to statements about hashtag standing with Ukraine. What they wouldn't like you to notice them is them sending over blank checks to corrupt oligarchies in Eastern Europe using your money, or even letting you know where they sent wit went. That they're not actively fueling a regime change war that's resulting in a complete and total annihilation of a section of the world, and perhaps the entire world if we let it go far enough. As long as you wear a Ukrainian flag lapel on your suit jacket, you're in good standing with them. This is unethical dishonesty thrown down by our elite wealthy rulers of these organizations. They want you to skim the frosting off the top without getting to eat any of the cake. It's a diversion, a distraction of the highest order and most malicious intent. If it remains unchecked, the destruction it will leave in its wake will be nothing short of horrifying.
Earlier this year, you may have heard some news about a terrorist convoy that was on the move somewhere north of the United States border with Canada. While not an immediate threat to our republic, these deviants still posed a grave danger to the very existence of our democracy. Their danger did not come in the form of a ravenous Attila the Hun-style mob. Rather, it came from a neighboring government, our friends of the Maple Leaf on their flag. They were the ones who warned us of these Cretans and did everything they could to punish them. First, they smeared them in the media. They called them every single bad name in the book, slandering them relentlessly for not going along with their commands. When that didn't work, they resorted to nonviolent threats economically, saying that they would forcibly fire them if they did not comply with their demands. When the resistance still continued, their tyranny still unquenched, the Canadian government resorted to the last weapon they had, and the most ironic weapon they had, the free market. In coordination with corporations in the sectors of financial technology, the combined powers dealt what they thought was a death blow to these terrorists. They froze their bank accounts. They deflatformed their supporters on fundraising websites like GoFundMe in order to stop the flow of funds and stomp out their attacks in the system. Unfortunately, however, they could not control vehicles like cryptocurrency, something unmoored from institutional power from getting through. And nonetheless, the terrorists were thwarted by the combination of the state and corporate powers, and the reign of terror died down rather calmly shortly afterwards. And if you haven't caught on, these so-called, quote, terrorists actually weren't terrorists at all. What I described was the highly interesting saga of the, quote, freedom convoy of truckers that surged across Canada this past winter. They did so because they did not want to comply with the tyrannical command of the Canadian government and their corporate overlords to get vaccinated. They wanted to have autonomy over their own medical procedures, especially when they didn't think that they themselves were at risk. But their civil rights didn't matter to the two parties trying to make them comply, and all that mattered was such their compliance. It only mattered that, at the end of the day, they got what they wanted. The obedience of the people that they could control. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There isn't such a thing as absolute power in the West, but the combined might of the corporate and governmental worlds merging their tactics is just about as close as you can get. However, the question remains. Why? Why did they do this? Why would they pick this group of people? Well, it's for the same reason that this stuff happens to other, quote, undesirable people. Donald Sterling, the racist former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, was reportedly blacklisted from obtaining a bank account from J.P. Morgan Chase. Kanye West, who recently uttered anti-Semitic comments, is currently being blacklisted by major institutions in Hollywood and the media for his troublesome nature, and there are loads of other examples to name. This is not a defense of the actions and the phrasings of people like Kanye West and Donald Sterling in those specific moments. If we see bad behavior, we should call it out. We should hold people of power and influence accountable, because that's our job as citizens, remember? However, there is something to be said about the selectivity of whom the people in the ruling and expert classes choose to pick as their victims. Remember, it is not the job of corporations nor the government to dictate morality in society. That is the job of the people. They are supposedly they are supposed to be neutral institutions, to uphold the rights of individuals and facilitate the goods and services of an economy in a manner that best suits consumers. This new way of doing business, this so-called stakeholder capitalism, is immensely damaging because it deliberately flies in the face of that assertion. This modern-day fascist act, the com combining of corporate and state power to consolidate influence in society, is not blind nor unbiased. They are being used by a ruling class to wage war on these, quote, undesirables and their basic rights for the simple fact that these people do not agree with their ideas, opinions, and worldviews. The citizens, the people who should be dictating these things, are left powerless. They cannot do anything because they have no control over the centralization of state power that is taking place. 
When all of it is consolidated into a unifying block of commanding authority, there is little room for anyone to break in and stop it. In fact, there is evidence to support that not only do people in power abhor this idea, but they are actively attempting to work against it. Recently, news has broken that there is legislation afoot to hire 87,000 new IRS agents to, quote, help collect taxes. These agents will be armed with firearms and trained to do violence for the same reason as the truckers. They are worried about people not complying with their commands. Upon this announcement and the very understandable panic that broke out afterwards, the assertions that followed afterwards were laughably hilarious. They're only going to be going after the rich, they said. If you have nothing to hide, why be nervous, they argued. All well and good statements that are nice, nice in theory. But in practice, they don't make a hint of sense. The wealthy people, the ones that are advocating for this, by the way, have armies of accountants, attorneys, and financial planners to defend against this type of assault. They probably have some sort of security system in their home. They may even have armed guards. They are well prepared to defend against this type of thing because this type of thing is what they always have been and always will be concerned about, their power getting taken from them. This is a natural human worry. We all contend with it. The people outside of our caste system do not have these things. They have other things they need to put their money towards. They cannot afford to keep up with these other issues that are far less important. So, consequently, they are the ones that will suffer from this in a far much more of a disproportionate fashion than our elites will. They have no power economically, so they will be left defenseless when the economy begins to turn on them. The Fourth Amendment of the Constitution strictly prohibits this, by the way. Unlawful searches and seizures are still very much out of bounds, especially without a probable, pro probable cause or a warrant. However, because this doesn't fit the context of this new movement towards centralized power of corporate and government, people have seen to forget about it and throw it by the wayside. Again, this is what lawyers are for, sticking up for their clients against people violating their rights as citizens. But again, those who suffer the most are those without the power to defend against the tyranny of the state. Those are the mercy of the economies and the powers that hold them. Any person with a working prefrontal cortex should be able to see that this is true. But sadly, those are few and far between these days, as well as people to stick up for their fellow Americans as an act of courage against said tyranny of the state. How about student loan rel debt relief, for example? Or should we say a wealth transfer from one group to another? There's a reason why it's being considered unconstitutional by many of its critics, and namely because it is. It's completely unfair and unreasonable to take the burden that was willingly accepted by one group and casually appropriate that onto another group who had nothing to do with that group's collective individual decision-making. It is completely unjust, and very wrong in almost every possible way you can think of. But it's cheered on by our elites, because they are the ones that benefit. The most privileged in our society, the ones that abuse their power the most, nearly always come from the class of higher educated individuals at very elite institutions. However, the younger generation, becoming hilariously disenfranchised the idea of having to pay the penance for their sins they took on, have begun to look at ways to remove responsibility from their decision-making and shoulders. So, the way they've chosen to do that is by leveraging the power of our combined corporate and state overlords to unshackle them from the burdens of their own poor decision-making by appropriating it onto those who had nothing to do with the decision. The taxpayer. The money doesn't vanish. Every debt must be paid. In this new case, should the rule be upheld, it will be paid by people who may have not even gone to college in the first place. The people who did their duty and paid off the money they borrowed will not get a break either. They'll have to pay double time for people who were too inconsiderate, entitled, and lazy to pay only once. This does another cruel thing by incentivizing our young people to take a, quote, right job. Something that would require a college education and undergoing a shackling of massive amounts of debt, usually, to do so. 
And this is obviously absolute horseshit. There are plenty of fine and rewarding jobs in the world that do not require a college education to obtain. They're all important no matter what work that you do. And unlike our college-educated folks, you don't need to come out worrying about bills to pay for the next 40 years of your life. But that barrier is getting erased. And in its place, you will have another group, one that didn't pick the, quote, right jobs and path in life, to uphold for you. The wannabe ruling class gets incentivized while the people they view as serfs foot the bill for their insubordination and degrading nature. They can't stand them, so they have to step up to get ahead. People like Glenn Beck and Kim Iverson, among others, have responded to the theory of the, quote, Great Reset by saying that some elements, if not all, are happening. I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the slightest. I'll leave the tinfoil hats to Alex Jones and Eddie Bravo. But if I were to craft a conspiracy theory, one in which people are so disenfranchised and dependent on our ruling class for everything required for survival, it would be hard to beat something like the Great Reset. Our caste system in America, one that is hardening by the day, is proof of that. It's the most perfectly spun conspiracy theory ever, in fact. An elite cabal of powerful people using influence, money, and political capital to control people. This works because things that have always because these things have always worked to control people. There is a clear divide and distinction between the haves and have-nots of a particular era, and there always will be. The good thing, however, at least I think, is that people are finally starting to wake up and take notice. We wouldn't have had the talking points mentioned in this section and be as major as they were if they didn't kick up a massive blowback from the people who see the obvious insanity written within them. And that sanity, driven from the, moral and will, the morality and will of the people that can help change the future of our Americanized caste system, is what will set us free. Should we want to be free at all, that is. Integrity is vital when discussing anything related to the welfare of others, particularly around how they survive in America. Our current classist regime, resembling that of a caste system, has hardened to the point where nearly all power has been centralized to a certain group of untouchables. When people lose market power, they lose all value in that market. A thriving society is one where everyone has the opportunity to both participate and thrive. When people, particularly our ruling class, choke out any opposition to their regime, they choke out the ability for people to respect both them and the legitimacy of their rule. This never has, never is, and never will lead to a good place. Rather, it will lead to distrustful greed and resentment, which is the universal emotion that precedes all active malevolence. And Bill Gates is meddling. That seems to get a lot of people riled up as well. Whew! Okay. Well, that was good to get off my chest. I'm glad I talked about all that stuff. So... Like I said, guys, I, you know, the, the reason I, I've made a lot of posts about this kind of stuff is that it, this is something that is not going to go away. I think it's going to get much worse, in fact. And I think that it's going to affect, it is affecting everyone now, but it's going to keep affecting people if they keep doing this. And if you keep paying attention to it, it's going to get more and more aggressive in the back end. So my hope with all of these is not to scare you or threaten you or, or not th threaten you. That doesn't really make any sense, but you know what I mean. It's not to get you riled up so much that you don't want to participate or think it's hopeless or whatever. No, it's the opposite. Push back on this kind of stuff. Think about what your company is actually doing. Look, hold your marketplace leaders accountable. Do what you need to do to make informed decisions about what you do, who you support, and everything in between. So, thanks for listening, guys. I always appreciate it. I appreciate you. Own the day. Open your mind. I'll talk to you guys next week. Ah, thanks.
stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>